This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Please don't forget about the gram, at Burns Clan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness. He has a very extensive bio. He is the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, the uh, book award winner, the professor. He is Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Dr. Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? That's why you're the professional, man. I, I can't even remember all that about me. Uh, so kudos to you. That's a dope intro. One for the one for the history books. Can we get can we get inducted into some sort of podcasting hall of fame just for that intro? Hey, we're going to be inducted into our listeners' hearts. That's what we, <laughs> <laughs> we got more juice than that. We got more That's juice than that. This going to get. Let me tell you, let me tell you how much juice we got. <laughs> I got some shout outs too. I know what you're going to do. So I got some shout outs. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So, yes, in our listeners' hearts. But you know what? That is sufficient, abundant, more than enough. So, this is random and beautiful. I was uh, shopping which I probably do more than my spouse. So we defy all kinds of stereotypes here. I was in H&M. And if anybody wants to give me a gift card, H&M is a safe okay. bet. But anyway, give, uh, I was me, just... Give me one to express, okay? It's express. <laughs> super fancy. You super fancy. Um, so I was in there. I was just... It was random Wednesday afternoon. Not a lot going on. It wasn't too crowded, but there was this one other person there who I noticed was like, whatever. So I kept browsing around and then he walks up to me and says, excuse me, what's your name? And I'm like, uh, Jamar, Jamar Tisby. He's like, I thought that was you. And this guy, uh -oh. so shout out uh -oh. to shout out to Jamel. Jamel walked up to me. He is a listener of Pass the Mic and his wife sounds like an even bigger fan. Tyler, get this. She said, you and I seem like family to her. Wow. Because wow. not only because she listens so much, be, but because she processes the world in a similar way. Wow. And that was beautiful to me. So Jamel is a is a pastor in Louisville. Uh, his wife is a middle school teacher. And I, I just wanted to I say, what's up? Jamel. I think I know Jamel. Oh, for real? I, if this he, is the same Jamel that does college ministry, I know Jamel. I think he said he used to. And now he's being ordained at the church he grew up in. And he said his story was similar to yours. I feel Some like I know coming him. Home. Bro, you might. Wow. You might. Wow. That's incredible. Shout out to Jamel and Shout out. the entire family, his wife. Yes. That's just incredible. That moves me. That yes. people just randomly you shopping and then people watching you. I'm saying, I'm saying it was, a, it, especially in an audio format. Like, I don't know how you recognize me, but so glad that you walked up to me, made my day. Um, I, t I promised you I would tell Tyler, and now we're talking about it on the air. So thank you so much to our listeners and supporters. And if you ever do see me in the airport or the mall or whatever, do say hello. I have to shout out a couple as well that I met um, online and have had the opportunity to interact with. And they're up in the Northeast. And Ken and Rose I just want to shout y'all out. I'm not going to give you a full name out here, but Ken and Rose, you know who you are, um, had the opportunity to interact with them, hear their story. And they have just been such an encouragement um, regarding Pastor Mike, what we do at The Witness. So shout out to them as they navigate church and life and family. Mm. And they put me on to this incredible young musician that uh, we'll be shouting out here. Um, in the future as well. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know them better. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know many of our listeners better through the various events that we have throughout the year. And yeah. we are committed at Pastor Mike um, to planning some events, going on a mini tour, 
a number of different things that we'll be announcing and rolling out. But a big thing that we're definitely doing that I want everyone to know about right now is the Joy and Justice Conference is back. We Talk had our first it. one in 2019 and J&J is back. Uh, I feel like J- whenever we call it J&J, I'm like, this is very Jamar-centric. because it's like, <laughs> But Joy and Justice Conference is back. This year's theme is Rise Up and Flourish. It is going to be absolutely incredible. June 23rd and 24th, you can go to riseupandflourish.com for more details. We have some incredible speakers already. More to announce. Uh, I will be there speaking. Dr. Jamar Tisby will be there speaking. But we also have Oh Happy Danny will be speaking. Oh, Dr. Christina Edmondson. What? What? And it's so much more. It's so much more. I can't even get Bruh, into it right now. That's too much fire right there, right we, there. We just getting started. I'm telling you, we just getting started. Wow. We just popping the pump. We got a whole lot more to come. Um, so if you want to be a part, please, please go to riseupandflourish.com and more details will be released here in the next couple of weeks. But we're excited to curate a space. We're not just excited to be there, but if you are a black Christian who is tired, if you are mm-hmm. a black Christian who has been in the wilderness, if you are a black Christian who feels like you're in a dry space, if you're a black Christian, you feel like you've given up on faith, this conference, this experience is for you. And when we when we invite you, we're not just trying to invite you because we want a big crowd. We're trying to invite you so that you can have a space to reconnect with yourself, reconnect with your faith, reconnect with people who are just like you. And we're going to curate that space for you. So feel free. This is not going to be one of those conferences where black people walk in with their guard up, wondering what kind of microaggressions they're going to experience or who's going to say something out of turn kind of a thing. This is a space that is black centered. Yes. Welcoming everybody, but it is unashamed, unapologetically black centered. And what I'm excited about, Tyler, this is really going to have this conference is really going to have your fingerprint on it. Um, the first <laughs> joy and justice, you know, we, we it was by hook or by crook. Um, me and Zena, shout out to Zena. We, re, we really tried to, 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 you know, sort of spearhead that effort. But this one is going to I'm just eager for the Tyler effect. <laughs> we, got some, we got some stuff. Z is back. Okay. Z is back. Okay. Planning planned it, plan the conference. And you'll see her and get to meet her in person. But uh yeah, we got some things up our sleeve that we're really excited to unveil and reveal to you all. So again, be be patient with us, but we're gonna get this thing out and it's gonna be incredible. And so riseupandflourish.com just stay locked, stay tuned. Okay. That was an extended intro, but it's 2023. And listen, we ain't playing no games in 2023. Jamar, can I go off? Can I go, go off? off? You always can go off on this. Let's go. L- listen, man, before we even get into our main topic, I felt like there was a pre-topic that I felt like we had to address. And it really connects to um, what you've written in your article on Substack. But it came out last week that the Florida governor and the Department of Education decided that they would ban a Florida uh, African-American AP history course, which has been 10 years in making and development. According to them, it significantly lacks educational value. That is a direct they say what now? It significantly lacks educational value. That is a direct quote. And this organization, uh, excuse me, this administration has continued to be antagonistic towards black centeredness, racial justice, again, CRT, wokeism, things of that nature. And I have to tell you, Jay, a couple of things rose to the surface whenever I saw this. Number one is this is why we do the work that we do at The Witness, is we try to curate a space where Black Christians, regardless of where you live geographically, can feel as though they're being seen, they're being heard, their perspectives are taken seriously. But you know something else, Jay? It really is getting tiresome to me when we start acting like both parties are equally bad. Now, listen, this is the thing. I'm just going to... Both parties are not trying to actively restrict the witness of my ancestors. Both parties are not trying to actively prevent my flourishing. Both parties are not trying to actively restrict aid to the poor. Both parties are not trying to actively aid those who are in power at the expense of those who are not. And and, and I just, I'm struggling, Jay, because I just want people to hear, um, 
it's it, it's some false equivalency going on, y'all. Like yeah, I love y'all, but it's just y'all don't see what he's doing. Y'all don't see what these people are doing. This is the front runner for the Republican national uh, nomination for president in 2024, according to many political pundits and experts. My, my, my. And this governor decides to have a radical anti-vax, a radical anti-black history, a radical anti-fill-in-the-blank agenda. Now, according to him, he came out and said, well, it's because they include gender theory and intersectionality and socialism and Marxism. As if in an advanced placement African-American course, you shouldn't study deep and advanced theories, even the ones that you disagree with. And my question is, if we're starting to revise history and go back and see what's actually historical, what's actually right, how are y'all teaching Christopher Columbus? And my guess is going to be you teaching Columbus the same way you taught Columbus 20 years ago. So unless you're going to talk about Columbus and his cruelty and genocide and these things, don't tell me now you want it to be pure facts, pure history. And you don't want any ideology. You don't want any activism. So I just had to get on my soapbox, Jamar, because I'm tired. And those of us who are black and in Florida, we love uh, our heritage here. We love our cities. We love uh, the communities that we come from. But we tired, too. And I think there's a number of people who are going to resonate with that. As a Florida resident, how much do you think DeSantis is speaking on behalf of the people and he and how much is just him politically posturing? I think Ron DeSantis recognizes that there have been an influx of people who have moved to Florida over the past three to four years due to relaxed pandemic policies, also due to a direct attack on black history and uh, maybe agendas of inclusion and uh, policies that include more people and are a little bit more expansive. So I think he recognizes that he's building a base in Florida and he's building a base in Florida that will aid and fund and be the groundwork for a potential political campaign. Mm-hmm. But I think he is also skillful at uh, building the hostility of the opposition in order to create uh, culture war simulations. Like these are oh. not accidents. These are culture war simulations, right? Ooh. And they're culture war simulations because if he can, and, and, and this, is, this is how he skillfully does this, right? Is you, you have to study the rhetoric of the oppressor. He skillfully does this because what he did is he said, oh, they're trying to shoehorn gender theory into black history and black studies. So what he's doing is he's 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 playing upon a idea that some black people, actually many black people have that, oh, they got their rights before we did. Mm. And they have more rights than us, something that I commonly hear in places like the barbershop or the church or the men's group or what have you. And so he's playing on that and then also saying, well, you know, I understand why he did what he did. But do you think Ron DeSantis has any, does, does he have any cognizance of what conversation is actually going on among black people? Oh, I think he does. And, and here's and I, I think he is he is very shrewd in how he is presenting these types of arguments because you can see once this thing happened, once the report came out, he waited days before he responded, and he waited days before he responded to craft a certain narrative. So, in your to answer your question, I believe that he is both reflecting what a very loud minority of people within the states and a growing majority of Floridians believe. But I think he is also simulating culture war because I think that's going to be a foundation of his 2024 campaign when he decides he wants to run for the White House. So That's fascinating. You know, and that's, that's my view from the ground. Yeah, but it's yeah, funny yeah. because as a pastor, I have to think about what's going to be helpful for my parishioners What's going to be helpful for my congregation? What's going to be helpful for our neighbors and our community? 
and in a very red county, in a very red region of the state politically, we have to think about what is the message of human flourishing and human dignity, not just for ourselves, but for all people. What is the presentation of the beloved community? What does that look like um, in our context? And it's funny that we're talking about this because you wrote an article about the Black church's involvement in helping Black people on right. jamartisby.substack.com, of course, which everybody Thank should subscribe you. to. Please do so now. Um, so this is highly salient because what is going to happen, I've said this a couple of times, but I don't think I've said it on air yet, is in the coming years and even months, we are going to be freshly awakened to the essential place of black institutions in our political and cultural yes. landscape. What do I mean by that? Reawakened. Well, um, there was a, certainly a time when folks knew <laughs> the centrality of black institutions because we didn't have a choice. I'm talking about schools. I'm talking about churches. I'm talking about black owned businesses, I'm talking about black communities, places of affirmation and dignity building for black people. I think we're going to be reawakened to their importance precisely because of actions uh, such as the ones Ron DeSantis is taking. We always knew this anti-critical race theory crusade would result in the suppression of black history. And now we're seeing it. So it's not a surprise. But now we got to deal with that reality. And so who's going to deal with these realities best? the people and the institutions who have been incubated in an environment of racial oppression. Hmm. So as we talk about black institutions, we can we can talk about several different areas, a plethora of institutions, none more central than the black church, historically and predominantly black churches. You know, Jay, I, I think this is very interesting, and I want to hear this from your perspective, because writing about this, there's always a reflexive emotional and physical response for those of us who are still in predominantly Black churches or a part of, quote unquote, the Black church, what, what, whichever that, you know, right. I'll say this, whatever that means, right? Because <laughs> that's a question that we should have, like, what is the Black church and what are we talking about when we say the Black church? Mm-hmm. Um there's always this response. When I saw the article, I was like, oh, okay, what's he going to say about us? You know, what they saying about us? What they, they saying we're not helpful. They saying we're not relevant. So there's this automatic reflexive response. But you as a historian, when you read this data, what do you feel like it's conveying? And what does the data say about what people think about us? Because the truth is perception is often reality for many people. So what is the perception of the Black church when it comes to Black uplift today? Yeah, so I came across uh, this study by Pew Research. It was a poll that they recently took, and they were looking at, they were kind of gearing up for Black History Month. And it says, a look at what Black Americans say is needed to overcome racial, racial injustice. And as part of that survey, they asked Black respondents, who do you think or what group or organization do you think has done the most to help black people in recent years? And there was a lot of data in this study, but this is what stood out to me, this section on what folks say has done the most to help black folks. So here's the results. The question was the percent of black adults who say blank has done the most to help black people. Number one, the largest proportion of people said Black Lives Matter has done the most to help Black people in the U.S. in recent years. Now, there's an asterisk in the study that there's a literal asterisk next to Black Lives Matter that says the survey question didn't specify whether Black Lives Matter was the name of an organization or a broader movement. So just like you were saying with the Black church, what do we mean by it? We can talk about that with Black Lives Matter. We talk about the organization writ large, we're talking about a particular chapter in a particular city. Are we talking about the movement, sort of the slogan and the banner? So all that being said, 39% of respondents said Black Lives Matter has done the most. And that stands out because the next highest, it's double the next highest. The NAACP was second at 17% saying the NAACP had done the most. Then 
at 13% come black churches. So think about the proportions. Hmm. Three times the proportion of people say that Black Lives Matter had done the most as people who say that black churches or other religious organizations have done the most. So that jumped out at me that only 13% said the black church or the religious organization had done the most to help black people in recent years. And to your point of perception being reality, I can imagine black church pastors, people who are in the congregations, folks who have been devoted to the black church would probably have a reflexive feeling to that. So you're a black church pastor, you're a son of the black church. How do how does that data strike you? It strikes me as right on. Oh. Um, and it strikes me as right on in the way people perceive our work specifically for that purpose. Now, I think it's important to understand the phrasing of this question or the phrasing of this statement. When it says, this fill in the blank has done the most to help Black people in the U.S. in recent years. There's some things that surprise me, of course. I, I don't know. Does anyone actually know what the NAACP specifically does, right? Or is it just the representation of certain figures within the NAACP that would cause someone to say that, right? Hmm. Or it, when it uh, shares here that 14% is de dedicated or devoted to someone else, whoever that someone else may be, right? <laughs> like, what does that mean, right? I, I don't know. Right, Who knows? Right. Um, are some of these organizations, whether it's the NAACP or uh, these groups like the Congressional Black Caucus or the National Urban League, have they faded into obscurity in common everyday Black thought and Black conversation? You know, there are some things that are, are interesting and surprising to me, but it does not surprise me that Black churches are considered to be uh, less than helpful in terms of ranking uh, who has been the most helpful to Black people because, number one, Black church has largely become more influenced by evangelicalism and mm. uh, white evangelical movements versus being influenced by its own community. So what we do is often a function of how church is done in other spaces versus what would be most helpful for our community. And as a pastor, we all feel that. We all feel that pressure. So notice the second we had to go to online church ministry, we didn't think, hey, so how do we reach our disabled uh, members and congregants? How do we reach our elderly? What we did is we, we did a hard pivot towards social media strategies, which are mm -hmm. often dictated by those who are powerful, privileged, and quote unquote progressive in order to get the most views, not in order to connect most deeply with the people. So we thought organizationally and institutionally, we thought about preservation, not about the cultivation of the people. We're all guilty of it, right? And that's our initial thought is, oh, how do we have the best possible presentation online versus how do we connect the best and the deepest to encourage the, the most holistic and healthy response and healthy relationship with our members and our partners. We didn't think about that, right? That was something we had to be shocked into. Oh, everybody doesn't have a Facebook account. Oh, everybody doesn't have a YouTube, doesn't know how to access YouTube. Oh, I'm getting texts and calls from my, you know, 70, 80 year old members saying, how do you click this link? You know, uh -huh. what do I do with this? Right. Uh -huh. So that makes sense because we've been more influenced by that than the grassroots and the ground level. But then I think secondarily, I think the black church is at a crossroads in terms of what it will be mm. and who it will be. And I think, honestly, I think our demographic has totally changed. How so? That we have now started asking the question and the most common question is not, how can we pro promote and cultivate the healthiest possible and the safest possible environment so that people can see Jesus and become more like Jesus. It's more about how can we keep the next generation? Hmm. And so keeping has been more important than cultivating. So it doesn't shock me in any way, shape or form that people will look at us and say, I don't really 
really feel like? Because it's not really a keeping strategy. Like speaking truth to power is not like a keeping strategy, <laughs> even in black churches. Isn't it funny that they said this is 13% and wasn't that around the number of black churches that were participants in the civil rights movement? Yeah, it's it's really interesting how uh, our memories distort historical reality. So whatever the exact percentage, but yeah, they say, you know, 10 to 15%, some historians think, uh, whatever the precise percentage, it was still a minority of black churches that were directly involved with uh, civil disobedience, nonviolent demonstration, protests, and things of that nature. So it, 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 it is, it is more than likely less participation, less uh, involvement than than we now think, even during what most people would recognize as, you know, sort of the heyday of the black church and social justice during the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. And, and that strikes me because it reminds us that these messages have never been, prophetic messages are never popular. There you go. Like, they're never permanently popular. They may be popular for a moment, but they're never permanently popular as people understand the sacrifice that is required right. to maintain them. They may be popular in hindsight, in the rear view exactly. mirror, like, oh, yeah, yeah that was good. <laughs> but not when they were living it. C.J. Rhodes, you know C.J. Rhodes down in uh, Mount Helmet, Jackson. He said something I'll never forget uh, because it helped correct me. He said, um, don't use social justice as a church growth strategy. Yes, yes. Ooh, that was heavy. It is not. It is not. <laughs> but, but, but some people, including myself at that point, because what I'm thinking about is younger generations and how so many conversations I was having at that point with college students in my grad program, um, they were undergrad, I was doing my, my graduate studies. They were saying it felt like they had to choose they could go to church and be like holy and pious, but passive when it came to justice, or they could join these other groups like the campus chapter of the NAACP or Black Lives Matter or these other groups, and they could be involved in social justice, but they would have to check their faith at the door kind of a thing. So I was thinking, you know, okay, well, we got to connect this. We got to help young people show. And true enough, there's, that's not wrong in and of itself. But if you're looking to sort of brand yourself as the social justice church, hoping that will bring in more people, uh, that's not going to work. And it's not even the right motivation. Yeah. And I, I, I want to get into what is helpful for black people and mm. what the church can provide that is helpful for black people. Because I think mm. whenever we talk about help, I think our definitions of what is helpful and our definitions of what is helpful in a long-term strategic sense may differ and may vary, but it also may drill us down deeper into ways that the church may need to receive this, but also put this in its proper context. So let's take a break. Everybody get a refill on your coffee or your tea. And step away for a minute, come back, and then while you're away, you can subscribe to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike. Here's some more on our Patreon subscription. We'll be right back here on the PTM Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Tyler. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And we are excited that you're listening to this episode of Pastor Mike, but let me encourage you to support us. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike. And for just $1 an episode, just a dollar? now that's the bare minimum, that's four quarters. But if you want to go higher, okay, 5, 10, go higher. 15, right. 20, 25, whatever it is, that will keep this show going and keep the high quality that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you for listening, but you can take it to the next level. Patreon.com slash Pass the mic. We appreciate you. So, Jay, in our last segment, I'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to be helpful to Black people because you brought up this age old conversation about political and spiritual and Christian and social and all these cross sectors. As Dr. Raphael Warnock famously has said in his book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, 
Is it slavery to sin or the sin of slavery? That this Mm. has been the age old question within the black church of what do we focus on, the spiritual or the social, uh, the theological or the practical and the pragmatic. So what do you feel like is important for us to hear about the word being helpful and this idea? Because I do think you know, just to put my cards out there, the black church should be helpful to black people. Mm-hmm. And I do think that if we're involved in this, we should strive to be helpful, not just to spiritual needs and theological needs, but also to practical social concerns that God cares about both the soul and the body, both your mm-hmm. state uh, eternally and your state physically and temporally as well. So what do you think we should be processing as a historian, as one who is now on the ground at an HBCU, what are, what should we be processing? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what should we be processing, you know, as the black church? So I wonder, this may be stating it too forcefully, but maybe there's a difference between a black church and a church with black people. So mm. by that, I mean, whoa, Is there a sense in which if you are not helpful to black people, are you a black church in the truest sense of the term? And I'm not even talking about demographics. I'm not talking about intentionally interracial or multi-ethnic churches. I'm talking about churches that are predominantly black. And If it is a church that is predominantly comprised of black people, but is not healthy or helpful for black people, by which I mean both body and soul, in what sense then is it a black church? Because I think what makes the black church the black church is that sense of racial solidarity and a commitment to the uplift of black people given our unique history and context in the world and in the United States. So again, that may be stating it too forcefully, but I I think it gets at the idea that fundamentally, to me, what truly defines a black church is that dedication to black uplift and flourishing in all areas of life. And if a church is failing to do that because it's too committed to white evangelical methods and principles, because it's fearful of losing butts and seats or money in the bank or whatever it might be, then it it, it is stripped of what makes it truly uh, unique and beneficial for black people. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think it is also, there's a caveat to even me talking about our influence from white evangelicalism or influence from other things that we should be aware of current church conversations. We should be aware of current church practices, best practices according to majority culture or according to popular denominations or popular movements. So it's not to say we shouldn't be aware, but does that shape the way we theologically present the gospel? Or- Mm -hmm. Is the requirement not for us to be more relevant, but to be more ancient? Hmm. And ancient doesn't necessarily mean that we resist creativity and relevance, but I think it does mean that we root our pursuit of creativity and relevance in something deeper. Woo. And I think what I've been wrestling with as a pastor at a black church is, is there new wine skin for ancient oil? Like, is there, is there a new container for that which is ancient and can it be presented in a way? Cause I think, I think we've reduced relevance to social media clips and how many followers wow. we have and all that. I think that's kind of, yeah. I think what is what is actually relevant is how creatively can we present an ancient message that cuts through the distracting noise and reaches the people in 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 various ways in order to push them towards the timeless message that we have but that still touches their timely situation. And I think as a pastor I'm trying to process you know, is this 
is it possible in 2023 without massive budgets or without, you know, uh, firms and consultations? And, you know, is it possible without allocating massive parts of your budget to uh, these types of strategies? But, or is it possible for us to say, we want to be the most creative church at doing good for our people? And we want to be the most creative church at loving our people holistically. You know, we want to be the most creative church at touching people with the most liberating message, which does include what happens on Sunday, but isn't limited to that. And I think that's what I think many of us are as young black pastors are processing. So sort of going back to the survey, um, one of the things that I think, first of all, I think this this survey sort of leaves more questions than it answers, which is fine. Um, it leads to rich discussion like we're having right now. Um, we're seeing about the perceptions of the black church. There's two things I would say to that. One is how are we defining the black church, which you've mentioned before. But I, in that, what I'm saying is, does the church distributed still count as the church? So I think mm. one of the things that people are looking for is clergy and collars, a banner of greater St. Stephen Mount Zion Baptist Church there as a congregation in the official capacity, right? Um, does it still count if church members, black Christians are there? Does it still count if an elder or a deacon is there, but it, it's not under some religious banner that you can just see, right? So my argument yes. is yes. Black, black Christians were plenty present and are plenty present in justice movements. It's more a question of having the eyes to see because it may not come in the form or the vehicle of an official congregational or denominational event. Um, so that's one thing is, is how are we quote unquote counting the black church? The other thing in, in terms of questions this is leaving is if that is the perception that only 13% of people say the black church is, is sort of leading the way or doing the most to uplift black people, what are the problems then? What, are, where is the disconnect? It, like if we can really hone in on that, what are people saying is not there? What are people thinking the black church is or isn't doing and boiling down, boiling it down more specifically? Because I don't think we can think about relevance, even the healthy kind of relevance you talked about, if we don't understand what the obstacles or the tensions are, which is something I would just want to know more about. You know? I, I agree with you. I think that is something I'd be very curious about. And and actually, this is something I'm going to solicit. Hey, if you're a listener and this is your story and you agree with this, this resonates with you as in your black and you're a former member of a black church or what have you, or you're part of a black church and you, you're with the 13%. Why? You know, what is resonating with you about this and why would you agree? I think also, Jay, I think We've really, and I think there are certain uh, organizations that help the witness, notwithstanding, you know, Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, you know, things of that nature. I would love to hear people talk about, well, okay, so what does it look like for a church to have a holistic politic and a holistic mission and a missiology that doesn't just result to, hey, we're going to, you know, shout at you at the food giveaway and, you know, we're going to, you know, try to get you in the door, you know, at the, we're going to try to get you in the door, you know? So what, what does it look like to have something that touches the hearts and the minds of people? And then also does have that spiritual fervor. So for us, we've been trying to figure out what that looks like, but we did some twice last year that we're going to do, I, I think four or five times this year, but we called it the faith fill up and that's a gas card giveaway. So we gave away gas nice. cards to people and, you know, is giving them a, you know, at that particular point, it give them mostly a full tank of gas, almost a full tank of gas, you know, when gas was pretty high and things of that nature. Yes. But 
so we gave them gas, breakfast, in kind of like a drive-through setting. But then there was also an option for prayer as well. So they could pull off to the side and there were people that were willing Ooh, to pray with like them. Yeah. And it was really dope because we're actually, we're obviously a black church. We were actually able to partner with um, a local predominantly white church in town, a church of Christ church. And we were able to do it together. Um, shout out to Pastor Seth who listens to the podcast. Shout out to you. Um, but we were actually able to partner with them and it was kind of our way of saying and plotting together, okay, so we're we're meeting a physical need, but we're also giving space. And nobody was forced to receive prayer. Nobody was forced to any of that. They said, no, we weren't going to be like, you know what? I just bind that in the name of Jesus. I rebuke your resistance. And I, <laughs> you know, we didn't throw oil at them if they did that. But if they decided not to, that's cool. But, you know, for us, we kind of had that mentality of, well, we want to meet a tangible need, but we also don't want to hide the transforming power of what we believe in. So let's merge these things together. And in giving away thousands of dollars of gas, we're able to kind of do them both together, right? And actually meet those needs, but then also offer spiritual transformation. And I mean, the, the testimonies were just blew me away. You know, at we start at 6 a.m. and 5.30, I get there, you know, or 5.15, I get there and lines around the block. Oh, you my. Know? People are just, yeah. I mean, the second time, I think we gave away 300 gift cards, I feel like, something like that. Wow. And so I just, I'm like- is And it, with is no it, expectation, like this isn't a quote unquote outreach event, right? Like no, it's not like no, sign up so we can email you. <laughs> we just want to bless the community. If people want to do that, cool. If they don't, cool. Um, we don't spam anybody as a result. You know, we were intentional about putting them in a separate database so they didn't feel like they were part of our church mailing list because mm, you didn't smart. opt into yeah. that, you know. Yeah. You know, just things like that. It's like, okay, so, you know, what, what does it look like for us to, is it those types of creative events? Is it a voter registration drive? Is yeah. it, yeah. you know, helping those who have past felonies get those things expunged from their record and getting their licenses back? Is it you know, food? Is it economics? Like, what does it specifically look like for the Black church to have that, but then also not too intentionally connected to we're doing it for a reason. Like, we're not just doing it because we're nice people. Yeah. Like, yes, we want you to flourish, but we're also doing it because God has moved us to do this. Yeah, we're Jesus Um, people, yeah. And that's important, right? Absolutely. Um, I feel like there's a, there's a, it's, it's, it's simple, but not easy. It's simple, but it can still be hard. And the simplicity of it is with any church, no matter who, you know, what race or ethnicity the people are comprised of, with any church, people want to know it's a church that cares. It's a congregation that cares. And how do you do that? By paying attention to, to people's needs, their hurts, their harms, and, and trying to, to heal and provide and support, Right. And then where the black church comes in in terms of support is dealing with some of the unique combination of factors that we deal with because of racism and white supremacy. So there was another Pew study a few months before this talking about black Americans have a clear vision for reducing racism, but little hope it will happen. And there was a question that said it's asking the percent of black adults who say each of the following is an extremely big problem for black people in the U.S. today. So they're they're sort of ranking these things in order of how big of a problem at the top with 63 percent is racism in general. 63 percent said that is an extremely big problem. But then came police brutality, economic inequality affordability of health care, efforts to limit voting, and the quality of K through 12 schools. And then there was another question related that said the per- percent of black adults who say racial discrimination is the main reason why many black people can't get ahead these days. 68% said racial discrimination was the main reason. So when I say it's simple, all of those things I listed, racism, police brutality, economic inequality, none of that's new. Like we've been dealing with that for our entire existence on this continent. But just because it's simple, just because it's straightforward in terms of identifying what the issue is, 
doesn't mean it's easy to address or easy to solve. But I think we go a long way, particularly as black churches, to address in an overt way, like you just said, one, directly meeting the the needs and the issues caused by over-policing and mass incarceration, for instance. And then two, directly and overtly doing it, making sure people know we're doing it because we follow Jesus. We're not forcing this on you, but we want you to know it's not just out of the kindness of our hearts. This is a, this is about the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Yeah. And I think part of that might even deal with the perception because might it be the case that Black Christians are doing plenty to help and support other Black people, but they're not necessarily being as vocal or straightforward about right. why they're doing it. Right. We, we're not in the name great of Christ, with PR. You know? Yeah. Like not great with marketing, you know, which is probably a healthy thing. Right. Like, right. You know, not to be like, ah, look at what we did and all this. It's like, okay, actually maybe we just say it and keep it moving. But yeah. I think the final in, thing in, I in say, Jamar, of, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just, just to add on to that in a sort of always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have kind of way, you know, exactly. that, no, I completely that kind agree. of thing. I think the last thing I would say, Jay, is I I think in reading results like this, and I talked about the uh, the, the polls that we see, Pew Research, whatever it may be, Gallup, Barna, there's just this reflexive response of defensiveness. I think we really, in 2023 and beyond, have to reject a defensive response to what we perceive to be a harsh critique of our churches. And... I think the ability to receive harsh critique or criticism and not be defensive and not be feel the need to protect and preserve the institution and not feel the need to circle the wagons and say, well, I know 65 pastors that are doing an amazing job. And all. I think the need to receive that has become paramount and just to say, well, you know, we, we should do better. And I'm proud of what we are doing, but there's a lot more that we need to do. And I looked at this and read your article and took it as instructional. So let's go back to the board and, you know, look at this from a staff perspective, a leadership perspective. How do we get better at loving our community well and uplifting people who look just like us and not just feeling like we have to stuff them into the door and, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at metrics in a, in a, such a wooden way. Let's look at it more and along the lines of, how many people can we serve and love and care for? Yeah. And even how can we receive the fact that people believe that movements that are in the street and in their face are far more effective mm. and they give them maybe more hope than what we have in the past? I think that's a something to receive. And I think that's mm. something to not be defensive about and not argumentative with, but also something to say, this, this could help us. I was helped by reading this. And it's something I'm going to bring to our church and our leaders and our staff and say, look, we have to, this is the perception. And I don't know if this is a perception in Pensacola. I don't know if this is a perception in Florida. I don't know if this is a perception in the South. I don't know if there's differences. What it does say is there's an overarching view. Shouldn't be ignorant to that. We also shouldn't act like it's the worst thing in the world to hear something that's going to hurt us now and potentially Mm. help us later. Mm. Well, just to put a historical perspective on it, um, I, you know, one of my historical heroes is Fannie Lou Hamer, and she told it like it is and to to whoever, to Vice President Hubert Humphrey, but also to black pastors. Yes. And she talked frequently about those old chicken eating preachers who uh, she said were more interested in getting a free lunch off of their parishioners than joining her and other uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee folks and activists in the movement. Uh, so it's 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 long been part of the job of activists to motivate and spur on the black church, whether individuals or congregations. Joseph H. Jackson, who was president of the National Baptist Convention for forty years, quite infamously deliberately kept the NBC out of direct action nonviolent protest. Um, That's the largest black Christian organization in the country. 
and it did not take an active role in the civil rights movement, prompting the formation of the progressive National Baptist Church, which Martin Luther King joined and others. So that's always been part of it. And I really do think comes back to simplicity. What does loving your neighbor look like? What does it look like to for the black church to love their neighbors, both in the community and within the congregation and help lead to flourishing? Um, but I take your point well, like this is this is what it is. These, this is data and we can either reject it and go on with business as usual, which seems to result in alienating more people, or we can accept it as feedback and say, all right, how do we deal with this? How do we use this, incorporate it and help us do what we're here to do even better? So. Amen. Amen. That's the truth, bro. I would love to hear from my listeners as well. If you have a story or a situation or something that underscores these or even something that you would like to say in response, let's let's increase listener feedback in 2023. Let us know. Reach out to us. Let us know what you what you feel like, what's going on, especially our Patreon audience. We love you so much um, and appreciate you for um, funding this work and keeping this work mm-hmm. going. So if you feel like there's something that you want to say, would love to to hear from our um, our listeners and our patrons about topics like this. Jay, 2023 is going to be a great year. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to hearing more from you at jamartisby.substack.com. So everybody should go and subscribe so you can get oh. that latest heat from Dr. JT. Thank you, sir. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.